0: We have Dr. Don Roy with us. Uh, He was with us last night and he taught two sessions. The first session was with raising younger children and uh, the second session was with older children. Um, It was fantastic, phenomenal. Uh, Just really convicted and encouraged at the same time. And I am so thankful and blessed that this brother is with us today to share with us a very important subject, a subject on on parenthood altogether, um, understanding who God is as our Father. Uh, so with no further ado, I want to welcome our brother. Let's welcome him um, here at FBC Thank you, brother. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it is uh, exciting and it's a pleasure to be here. It's a privilege to be here. I think we did have some fun last night talking and sharing. Um, and that was about parenting and about raising children. So what I'd like to talk about this morning is the fatherhood of God and how it is that we draw near to him and how it is that he relates to us. Uh, if we can start in, in Romans chapter 8, and actually before that, let me, let me pray real quick. Uh, Father, as, uh, as I come this morning now to, uh, to share this word, I, I pray that you would make it fruitful. Uh, Lord, I pray that it would be of benefit to the folks here who are listening, that you would help me to speak, and again, that you would help make it applicable in their lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. So in speaking of the fatherhood of God, we'll start out in Romans chapter 8, and and this is going to be more topical, so you don't have to turn there necessarily because we're going to be jumping around in various passages. I'll just read it, Romans 8, 14 and 15. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In terms of what the scripture says about the fatherhood of god i want to start out with just by talking about what the fatherhood means in general and then we'll we'll talk about how it is that he draws us close to him in a deep relation as sons and daughters of our heavenly father Uh, i think it's an important topic for a couple of main reasons Uh, one is that i mean as you know the scripture is god's revelation of himself to us that that's him he, he could uh, reveal all sorts of things about himself when he does some of that in nature and he does some of that through general revelation, but, spe- but special revelation, what he gives us in the scripture is what he has chosen to tell us about himself, that we can know him, that we can have relationship with him. Uh, and in that, the term father in the new testament is the most common term certainly that jesus uses when he refers to god now in the old testament there are other terms there are about a hundred different names of god in the old testament uh el el shaddai god all powerful jehovah jireh provider uh and and jehovah Rapha, our healer and it goes on and on about all the different names the word father in the old testament is actually only used 15 times Uh, In the New Testament, however, that's how Jesus commonly refers to God. In the epistles, it's over 165 times, and John, over 100 times alone in the book of John, the word Father is used. And Paul keeps that on in his writings, he uses that about 40 times, so it's common. And, and, and I stress that because if it's the common way that God reveals himself to us in that description, then we ought to know what that means. We ought to know uh, what what he is telling us and what he's communicating to us about who he is and his relationship to us. The term father in and of itself is... is a good word but what we're really trying to drive at is what the attributes is of that what is it that that means what who is a father what does he do how does he relate to us and knowing that the more we know, know that that gives us peace and security in a broken and uncertain world we live in a broken world we live in a fallen world and bad things happen but yet having the security of a heavenly father who knows us, who loves us, who, who is omnipotent, and who has all power can certainly bring us peace and comfort and security. Um, I do a lot of counseling and, and Luther often said that counseling is helping people to better know God and better know their relationship to him. So the more we understand truths that the scripture teaches us, certain doctrines that the scripture teaches us, then, then the more we know how to live life the more we're equipped to live life for his glory. And the more we understand life, that we, we can know the deeper things of what is happening, know what God is doing, and then, again, respond in a way that glorifies him. When we understand what the fatherhood of God means to our lives, individually as well as corporately, because it means that as well, we're, we're comforted, motivated, and equipped to carry out the good works which he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, right? Ephesians 2.10. Uh, And we can do that with joy because we've got the comfort of this Father who is always there, always present, and always loving us. So we can then flourish as sons and daughters uh, of our Heavenly Father the way we're designed to. He designed us as his children to live in a certain way with a joy and peace. Um, Now, I'll also say up front that as we talk about this, this is for believers and followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, Because those are the only ones who are, in fact, sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. Uh, We just read in Romans 8, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, and we have received the spirit of adoption as sons whom we cry, Abba, Father. Because we also read in John chapter 8, when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, he said, If God were your Father, you would love me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot hear my, uh, can you, you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you, and your will is to do your father's desire. Uh, no one is an orphan. Uh, there's no middle ground. Everyone has a father, and your father is either the devil or God. We all start out as children of the devil. We're all born in sin, slaves to sin, and we place our faith in Christ, and He, uh, he the Heavenly Father becomes our father in the sense that we're adopted and become essentially a brother and sister of Christ. And I think it's important to, to talk about this, to point it out, because a lot of people will just say, oh, you know, everybody's a children of God, you know, everybody's a child of God one way or the other. And in a sense, I'll say, yeah, I, in a sense, that's true, because God did create everyone. He created everything that exists. He created every person that lives on the planet, and he bestows common grace to everyone. He, the rain falls on the unjust as well as the just. The farmer who is a sinner, uh, who, who is uh, alien from, from Christ, still has crops who grow be, that grows because of the, the rain. Um, but in terms of what we're going to be talking about today, the relational characteristics, the relational qualities that we have, that, that the way that we have the love of the Father bestowed on us and the way that we can love the Father, that only applies to those who are adopted by God through the grace of Christ. Now, so if you're not a believer, the things I'm about to talk actually don't pertain to you. Uh, But that can change. That's the good news, is that uh, that we can uh, place our faith, become adopted sons. So I'd ask you to please listen and hear what God says for those who are His. And I pray that for those of you who are His, which I assume is pretty much everybody here, um, that I want you to, to stir up this longing for a deeper relationship with Him and a joy Uh, in terms of the way that he loves us and a deeper understanding of the way that he loves us that we can then relate to him in more really in in more joy and peace. Uh, So rejoice with me as we look into the means that God uh, uses for him uh, to become our father and to live as a son and daughter. And I'll also say kind of another preliminary um the meaning of God's fatherhood has to come from Scripture, not from experience. And I say that again, like I say, I do a lot of counseling. So people oftentimes come to God, and, and when they think of him as a father, it's like that, that just does not sound good. There's no appealing uh, appealing to that at all, because my father was horrible. He abused me. He abandoned me. Uh, he, he, he was neglectful. He was selfish. He was, he was uh, authoritative. And... And so some people come with this skewed view of God uh, and who he is. And again, I see that frequently in in the counseling room. So we've got to be sure that we interpret, we we don't use our experience to interpret scripture. To say that, you know, my experience is I had a horrible father. uh, And so if God portrays himself as a father, that's a terrible thing. Uh, Instead, we need to start with the scripture and then interpret our experience. So then I can say, this is what a father should look like. This is what a father was designed. This is who God is as our father. And then I can evaluate that, okay, what, what I had as a father perhaps was wrong, was terrible, but that not is, geez, I can't even talk. That is not uh, an accurate portrayal of fatherhood and certainly of the fatherhood of God. And, and, and the flip side, I'll say, even if you had a wonderful father, I had a wonderful father. I had a wonderful childhood, uh, a very uh, loving, strong father and, uh, who, who led me to Christ. And uh, we had a relationship, wonderful relationship till, till the day he died, enjoyed being with him. And, but I'll say that even if you had a wonderful father, guess what? God is much greater. Everything that we have on this earth that portrays the good things about who God is and what he gives us is simply a, a type and a shadow and a foreshadowing of things to come that when we see him in his real glory and his real might and who he is and, and the real love that he bestows on us with, with eyes that, that are wide open, it's going to be incredible and it's going to be amazing. So even, though, even those who had wonderful fathers, this is even better. So what does it mean? Uh, What does it mean to have God as a father? Um, All of those names in the Old Testament are powerful, all those names of God, they're they're powerful, they're good to know, they're important to know, attributes of God. Yes, he is our healer, he's our provider, uh, he he is all-powerful, and we can go through all the names of God and know that. But what's different about this use of Father in the New Testament, it's that word Abba that Jesus uses over and over again. And the difference is how personal it is and how intimate it is and how caring and loving that it is. Jesus uses that to point out the relationship with him and that word Abba is used it's not just a child's daddy but it's even the same word is used as an adult son or daughter addressing his his or her father in in a loving way I mean I have 10 children Glory to God. And uh, we have, they, they always call me daddy or, or other things when they are little. But even to this day, sometimes my adult sons and daughters will call me, you know, say, Daddy, can, can you do this for me? Or can, you know, I need this. I'll, I'll still hear that word daddy. Or there are other terms that, that they use that are still terms of endearment. So, so that word Abba Father isn't just a childish daddy. It's even a, a, an adult relationship with a father that is intimate, knowing, uh, and deep. So knowing God as Father is personal and relationship, excuse me, relational. Uh, In Romans 5, the whole thing about the redemption, the whole purpose of the redemption that we read in Romans 5, 6 and 11, uh, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, Uh, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now have received reconciliation. You hear that word reconciliation, reconciled, used over and over again, because it's relational. It's that we were alienated from God because of our sin, and now that we have been saved through Jesus Christ, we're adopted. We are sons and daughters. We're now in the household. And now there's a sharing of everything that he has with us because we're, we're his children. We're now in the, in, the, uh, in the kingdom. We're now in his household. We're brothers and sisters of Christ, if you will. We'll, we'll look at that here in a minute. So all the gospel is about restoring relationship and drawing us into a deeper relationship with the Father. Uh, and, and he went through incomprehensible measures to bring us to himself. I mean, we sing about it. we sing about that this morning. We sing about it all the time, about what he did sending his son on the cross, and, and it's we sing it over and over again, and we sing it repeatedly because we can't fully comprehend it. We can never celebrate it enough. We can never fully understand how deeply he loves us and to what extent he went through to bring us into relationship with him for all of eternity. It starts now and it's gonna last for all of eternity. And, and I love this, pictures of anticipation in the same way that we anticipate the coming of a new one into our family. What happens when, when someone, uh, when mom and dad are pregnant, now there's a new baby coming, and what's, what's one of the big things that we do? Prepare the nursery. All right, you see that on Facebook all the time. You get the pictures, here's the crib, here's a pretty little, you know, we, we bought both pink and blue until we're waiting to see what we find out. Okay, now we know, now everything's decorated in pink or everything's decorated in blue. And we get the changing table and the crib and the, and the bassinet and the, you know, and, and everything, we're excited about everything that it, we're all prepared for this new person who's coming into our family. What did God do? He spent six days preparing a universe, Uh, an incredible universe, an incredible earth, and think about the majesty of everything we have on earth, the mountains and the streams and the bayou and, and all the beauty that exists in the world. And he specifically prepared a garden and then brought Adam and Eve into that garden. And what's he doing now? We read in, in John chapter 15 that he's preparing a room for us, right? In my father's mansion are many rooms he's preparing. And so if he's preparing something for us, when we come into all of eternity with him, there's an excitedness in the relationship with the father. What happens when someone's saved? The angels rejoice, right? There's, there's joy in there in, in a very real sense in, in the same way that we are excited to have joy when a new person is born into our family. And his love is so much higher than ours. I mean, so think about how excited we are when a new baby's coming. And, and his, his anticipation is even greater. Uh, so as we prepare a nursery, God prepared a garden for Adam and Eve, and he now prepares a room in his own house. Uh, as we take joy in our children, God the Father takes joy in us. And, and it's also important to, to contemplate the, the fact that God, the Father, takes the initiative in relationship. And again, we see the anticipation. Now, as believers, we continue to struggle with sin. That, that happens till, till the day we die. And I always quote, you know, especially in my counseling, First John 1, 8, 9, you know, verse, verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth isn't in us. And that's comfort because that's written to believers. So I know that I'm going to fail. But in verse 9, he says, um, it, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's, that's wonderful. But even when we know that um, confession and redemption and forgiveness is, is readily available, sometimes it can still kind of come with a hangdog attitude and say, yeah, okay, you know, God forgives me and I'm, I'm glad I repent. And, and we can come, again, well, like I say, with this hangdog attitude. But, you know, Jesus paints such a beautiful picture for us in, uh, in Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5 is the prodigal son. And, uh, and what we read, of course, a prodigal son. It is horrible at, at, at the get-go, right? He starts out, you know, basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead, but since you're not, give me, you know, give me my inheritance and, and I'll go, go my way. So he takes the inheritance, goes, you know, spends it all, you know the story, winds up, you know, feeding the pigs and say, man, I wish I could eat this pig slop because I'm so hungry. Finally comes to his senses and said, you know, if I could just be a servant in my father's house, I could live better than I'm living now. So he prepares, he rehearses this big, uh, confession and he's going to come and repent before his father and, and here's what i'm going to say i'm going I'm to tell him look you know I, i've sinned against you and i just want to be treated as a servant so he rehearses this as he goes and what ha- what actually happens the father's out there looking the father's out there looking for him, and as he sees him out there, the father runs to him, and he doesn't. And, and the the son doesn't even get to his confession out. Right? He doesn't even get to repent. The father just says, "You're home, welcome." Puts a robe on him, gets all excited, brings him in. Let's prepare the fatted calf. <clears throat> And it's a picture of the Father. It's a picture of God the Father and how excited and joyful he is as we repent and as we draw close to him. Because what's happening, the son is now in a relationship again with the Father. And that is what he is looking for. Um, the As a father, he enjoys giving us things. I mean, I love giving things to my children, right? We're excited. I mean, I think, you know, uh, Christmas is a really, really big deal. Uh, at our house, and my wife starts buying for Christmas about two years in advance. Uh, you know, we have stuff in the attic that, you know, well, we can give it to one child one day and one grandchild and all this, and, um, and we have a lot of presents on Christmas Day, and um, the most difficult thing about Christmas Day is getting my wife to open one of her presents because she's so excited watching the others open their presents. I mean, every gift is thoughtful, every gift, you know, she purchased way in advance, and uh, and, and we open one gift at a time, and she's going, oh, you know, oh, go, go and open that. She's excited to do it. And we're saying, you know, the kids are saying, Mom, open yours. Go, oh, yeah, yeah, I will, I will. But I'm excited to see that. And I think that's a reflection of our Heavenly Father, that He gives these gifts to us in, in an excited way. Matthew, Matthew 7 says, look, if you're evil, uh, and you know how to give good gifts to your children how much more and come in compared comparison to him even you know I am evil uh, when, when we look at that so as a heavenly father as much as I love my children as much as I enjoy them in comparison with God's love for us I'm evil Jesus says that right here he says if you know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him uh, and in and, and one last picture, again, in the Father's delight, I, I think Zephaniah 3.17 is, is one of the most mind-boggling passages, only because of the picture that it draws is so contrary to, I think, what we normally, certainly what I normally think of. In Zephaniah 3.17, he says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. you picture God singing loudly because he's rejoicing over you? He's rejoicing in his relationship with you. How how excited he is about that. And again, that's, that's kind of mind-boggling because you can think of all I can... <clears throat> When you think about all the pictures that we have of God, oftentimes we tend to think of him being probably a little more stern, a little more detached or whatever, but he's he's joyful with our presence and in our presence. He sings, exalt over you with loud singing. Picture that in your mind for a while. The greatest good, he says he gives us good things. The greatest good that he can give us is himself right he is the greatest good god is the most perfect is the greatest good in all of creation all of, not outside of creation everything is the greatest good that exists and the greatest good is relationship with him and he continues to draw us in and, and he uses means to bring us into a deeper relationship with him and how do we do that in growth in holiness Growth in holiness, sometimes, I think for a long time, I thought of it as some kind of detached thing. It's like, okay, you know, I, I gotta measure up and I gotta get more holy and get less sinful so I can just kinda, I don't know, me, measure up on some scale. But I, I, I love this, um, Sinclair Ferguson wrote a book called Devoted to God, which I really loved because in it, he, he says that, you know, oftentimes we think of holiness as separateness from sin. But he, he says, I think I, he's got a different picture of that, and it goes beyond that, because God is immutable. He's always existed. He doesn't change. He's always been holy, but yet sin entered the world at some point, entered the universe at some point in time when, when Satan sinned. Uh, so God was holy before sin ever entered creation. And, and he paints it as holiness being devoted that in the trinity each person of the trinity be completely devoted to the other person in the trinity and love and devotion and putting the other person and devoted in every way and for us when we think of growing in holiness it's growing in devotion to god so that sin is it some, you know, measuring up with some rules that, you know, if I get three tickets and I've got to go pay a fine and, and God deals with that way. It's always in relationship to him. It's always a matter of, of putting something else in front of him or, or not uh, spending time with him. It's always relational. Sin is very relational. So the greatest good that he gives us is helping us grow in holiness. Uh, Romans 28, 828, everybody knows that uh we know that for those who love god all things work together for, for good for those who are called according to his purpose and I, and for those who know me i'm sorry i, I repeat myself a lot and sometimes people say you know do you know any other verses besides romans 8 28 29 well, yeah i know a few others but yes this is this is a, a, a drumbeat of mine i guess don't ever quote romans 8:28 without quoting verse 29 because uh, he says for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So the greatest good, all things work for the good. What's the good? That we conform to the image of his son, that, we would, that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, if you will. So, um, so everything that happens is that we become more holy. We become more like Christ. And I think there's four great doctrines that we need to understand and apply uh, to help us grow into deeper relationship with the heavenly Father, to grow in more devotion, to grow in that holiness. There's four things that I think we really need to understand, grasp. As parents, we need to we want to help our children understand that as well. But each and every one of us, I think, needs to grasp that, grasp these things, and and the four things I'll talk about briefly um, are are basic in some ways, but we got to grasp them in a deep way to grow in that relationship. And those four things are justification, sanctification, suffering, and our future hope. Uh, and in that, um, knowing these, these are doctrines and doctrines lead to practice. And I say understanding doctrines leads us to peace in, in a, in a more fruitful, joyful, peaceful walk in our lives. Um, so as we grow in holiness, we grow in devotion and unity in relation to one another uh, just as we grow with him. So the first one, justification, we, we set salvation. Now, one of the mistakes I think that I see in the church today oftentimes is when people talk about salvation, they stop at one point, which is an important point, is justification. When people say, yes, I'm saved, uh, that means to them that I've placed my faith in Christ, he died for me on the cross, and because of that, I've got his righteousness, and and I will now live for all of eternity. And when people say salvation, boom, they stop there, they put a period. And that's the starting point. Okay, Now, it's important to have a good starting point, because you can't become a disciple unless you're, unless you're first justified, but... Um, but you do need to have a good grasp of that, of what is that justification, and I'm amazed in I'm amazed in the counseling room how often I talk to people who have been in church for years and don't understand it and can't explain it uh, because you know what's what's the big point of justification in Romans three. He saved us from our sins, that we were, we were bound in, in, our, in our sinfulness. We were slaves to sin, and because of Christ, he, he uh, defeated sin. He set us free when we put, place our faith in him, paid that penalty. And then what's even more amazing is that he gives us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians uh, 5.21 always blows my mind because ah, for years I would think of of being saved and being justified is kind of bringing it up to zero. Okay, all my sins are wiped away, so now, okay, I'm, I'm at zero. That's not what it says. The scripture says that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we would become the righteousness of God. So he doesn't just bring us up to zero. He makes us perfectly righteous, at least legally, right, in, in our sight before God. So now we're into the family. But we've got to understand that. We have to understand, again, it's not limited justification. We're going to go on in that in a minute. Um, but in that justification, is it not? Is it merely a mental assent? You know, in James. Um so chapter two, I forget where it is, the devil faith. You know, the devils have, uh, the devils believe there's a God. And we've got a pastor friend that says, that's devil faith. You know, I was like, yeah, of course, of course there's a God. God exists. They, they know that. But do I have faith in Christ to the point that my life has changed? There's a change in my desire now that my heart of stone is out, that now I have a desire for his word, that there's actually a change in my life. Uh, <clears throat> for children, you know, did I ask Jesus in my heart? Or do I really understand, yeah, I'm a sinner bound for hell, and I need Christ, and, and I need to be saved from myself, I need to be saved from my sin, and because, I've got the, because of him I now have the Holy Spirit, I can change. So an actual change from living for self for a living for Christ. And, and you should be able, every one of you here, should be able to, to answer what we call the million-dollar question. I think that came from Lee Strobel or, or you know, some, one of the great evangelists, uh, you know, that if, if you stand before the judgment seat of God today, uh, why would God let you into heaven? Um, and I'm shocked at how many people stumble in the counseling room when I ask that question. So if you can't answer that question, I, I implore you to figure it out. I implore you. It's not because you come to church, it's not because you're a nice person, it's not because you try to be good, right? That, that's not why Christ would would. Uh, that's not why God the Father would allow you into heaven. I won't give you the answer if you don't know it. Ask your neighbor. Um, <clears throat> you should also be able to explain the gospel to someone. Uh, I went in a membership uh, in. Uh, membership class in one of the churches that we belonged to at one time. Uh, after we went through the membership class, uh, the pastor said, okay, we're going to come visit everybody before where uh, before we actually uh, bring you into membership. And one of the things he says, I want you to explain the gospel to me in whatever it was one or two minutes or less. So can you share the gospel with someone? Can you look to your spouse, your friend, your neighbor, your parent, your, your, uh, your sibling and say, this is how, you come to faith in Christ this is how, this is what salvation means uh, and if you can't explain that, I would implore you to to learn that and uh, and help your children be able to articulate that as well in that salvation too do they do they do you strive to live an obedient life is it is it fire insurance okay I've, i wrote my name on a card that can okay, i believe in jesus and my life isn't going to change or do i really strive to live an obedient life matthew 7 used to be one of the scariest verses to me as a new creature as a new creature as a new creation as a new believer there we go I was a new creature in christ um Matthew 7, 21 23, that's when they say, you know, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these miracles and we cast out demons in your name? And he said, depart from me. I never knew you. And that used to scare, scare me like crazy. Go, oh, how do I know? Well, like most things, read the verse in context. Um, if you complete if you read it he says depart from me you workers of iniquity so if we don't live an obedient life if we're not striving again we're not perfect we're going to struggle but if we're not striving to live an obedient life we don't have true salvation we don't have that true nature the heart of stone hasn't been taken out yet given a heart of flesh so let's not park on okay as i said the words and and now i'm saved was there a change? Was there a change? Do I truly want to live for Christ? I also love John 3:36 because at the end, at the end of, of that chapter, John contrasts, he says, "If, if I'm going to paraphrase it, if you believe in Christ, you shall be saved. But if you don't obey him, the wrath of God remains on on you. So he contrasts belief and obedience as opposed to belief and unbelief. So all that points to in terms of the fatherhood we're talking about sin and obedience are relational uh, being holy is being devoted to god trying to grow in that holiness is trying to be is growth and being devoted to god and along those lines is now part of salvation is the next step is progressive sanctification it's all part of the same package because now when we're saved we grow and we grow how do we grow uh, a lot of believers don't understand what progressive sanctification means. It's important to know this because, again, I see people in the counseling room, they get all all upset because you think that now that I'm saved, I'm a new creature in Christ, right? So all these evil desires should just go away. My anger should just go away. My lust should just go away. My whatever should just go away because now I'm saved. So why do I even have these desires? But the scripture teaches us clearly that there's a growth process, right, called progressive sanctification. Um, this struggle continues. Romans 7, Paul talks about that, that, you know, why do I do the things I don't want to do, yet I don't do the things that I should do? And then of course he says, ends it with, glory be in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, the Romans 8, 28, 829 thing, everything that happens, that we be conformed to the image of Christ as believers, God is lovingly, purposefully, and deliberately conforming us into the image of his son why that we would have a deeper relation with him a deeper personal relation with him and we grow in that throughout our christian walk everything okay how many things all things what does that exclude Does that exclude the the family i grew up in uh, the, the marriage i'm in the children i have the job i have all things work for good why that could be conformed he's using that to conform me to the image of his son Oftentimes, I'll draw a little a little diagram, and I'll say, you know, down down here, um, gotta hurry. Uh, Down here is uh, uh, some point in time. I just draw a little tick mark. At some point in time, uh, I put through God's grace. uh, Hopefully, I put my faith in Christ. I become a believer. I'm justified now. And then, at some future point in time, I draw a little mark up here. Either one of two things is going to happen: either Jesus is coming back, or I'm going to die okay, one of those two things is going to happen, and then if I'm his, I'm going to be with him in all eternity, we call that glorification, and in between this justification, this glorification, it'll we call progressive sanctification, now we wish it was a nice straight line, right, every day a little holier than I was yesterday, that's not how it works normally, right, I draw what I call my stock market chart, it's kind of, you know, a zigzag, now it, it goes up, it goes up, that's the good news, if we're his, uh, it, it'll do that, but it ain't a straight line, we struggle with sin, and we were repent and then we grow and we put it off and and he continues to reveal our our heart I always say if God just kind of showed me my heart all at once I just say it ain't it's impossible I give up just you know send me to damnation but but if he opens up my heart one little thing at a time and says I want you to deal with this thing and that's that struggle I put off the sin as as I grow Um, justification is 100% God glorification 100% God this sanctification stuff we call it's it's symbiotic if you will it's both us and god now if you belong to him it's gonna go up okay he who began a good work in me will complete it until the day of christ jesus uh and but philippians two twelve says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling sounds like it's all up to me but verse thirteen says, "But it's God who's to will and works for his, his good pleasure." So God is working in us. So we're given commands that that we must obey and become disciples and learn and be obedient. So that that little line, I, I tell, I, I believe that that line is going to go up if you're His. Now the slope of that line we can we can impact on how obedient we are and how how much we strive to put off sin. Um. I love Titus 2, 11 to 14, because when when I say salvation, I think this actually draws the whole picture of salvation. Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. There's our salvation. There's Christ coming, appearing, paying for our sins, ma- making atonement, and giving us his perfect uh, righteousness. Um training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Progressive sanctification, right? Training us to live godly lives and work in righteousness. And then verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's glorification. There's how it ends. So there's a whole picture of salvation, not just, we don't want to stop at the justification. It's all there. He came to renew all of it. Um, And then he gave himself that we would be a people zealous for good works. You need to know that. And I think we need to help our children understand that because we're all going to struggle with sin. We're all struggle with sin. We put it off. We don't want to get discouraged in the sense that, well, why, you know, why do I keep doing it? Well, it's, it's, there's a process. There's a process that, that, we, that we repent a little earlier than we did last time, and eventually we'll be less tempted for that particular sin, and we grow and we grow. But we, we don't want to be discouraged, neither do we want to stop seeking to kill sin. Uh, so change will become, come as we grow more holy. It's going to be a bumpy road. Uh, but we understand it's God who is at work. Um, and we want to encourage you. You want to be encouraged in your progress, and with others, with other fellow believers, with your children. That as they as they progress, again, as they repent earlier, maybe they still sin, but now they there's a real repentance and a desire to change, and now they do it less often, less frequently. But they they grow in holiness. We want to be encouraged in our own progress as we strive to put off sin and encourage others as well. Um, switching gears, another another doctrine i think that we need to understand is god's purpose for suffering um whether it's us whether it's our kids whoever we we tend to just kind of expect things to go right um but the truth is they don't right surprise surprise uh we live in a fallen world things break things things don't i mean i i don't i don't really like to repair things i like to fix them and then boom that's it they should never fi- break again right so i get aggravated when they when they break and i have to spend my time fixing something and but it's i'm expecting the impossible we live in a fallen world um and and in james chapter one he says you know uh be joyful when when tribulation comes upon you he didn't say if he says when they come because they're going to come i um i used to say until one of my sons kind of messes up for me they, uh if you go into a uh a christian bookstore uh when you go into the ones that have you know all sorts of plaques and refrigerator magnets and that kind of stuff and you see the stitchery of you know god's promises and, and there's all these flowery wonderful things or a book on god's promises usually the one you will never find is john 16:33, where jesus says in this world you will have tribulation uh, you will have trouble and I was to say, you'll never find a refrigerator magnet on that. For my birthday this past year, David and Michelle had a refrigerator magnet made for me. It says, John 16, 33, in this life, you will have tribulation. So, so there is at least one refrigerator magnet with that promise of God. Uh, but that that's an actual fact. That's something that's going to happen. Um, you know, suffering can be... Corrective. We read about that in Hebrews chapter 12, where where we are disciplined, if uh, in in many ways. But more often, it's simply a part of the way that God is shaping us. We live in a fallen world. He uses us. One of my favorite verses on that is 1 Peter 4:12, because he says, "Why are you surprised when suffering comes, as if something unusual were happening?" I mean, that's just like another verse I probably need to put on my refrigerator. But so that when bad things happen, Peter says, "Why are you surprised?" Yeah, you live in a fallen world. You think something's unusual here? No, we suffer. Uh, that we we suffer from the sins of others. We suffer from broken things in general. We suffer from sickness. That that's part of this life. And and in James, Paul, and Peter all say the same thing about suffering. They tell us to rejoice. Paul says in, in Romans five three, rejoice in when we suffer james 1 rejoice in tribulation first peter 1 rejoice when these things come upon you and you think what are you guys thinking you know why would you rejoice and it's not in the suffering it's not in the things that are happening but it's knowing that god is shaping us it's knowing that god is using that in james he says he uses suffering to mature us and Rome in Romans. In Romans, uh, Paul says that that he uses us to produce endurance and produce character. In Peter, he says he uses suffering to try our faith and make it more sure. Um, and in uh, James one five, uh, we need to seek wisdom in the midst of our trials. And in that that verse, that's, you know, if we lack wisdom, let him ask. let, let him ask uh, in faith for God gives liberally. And I think that's one of those verses that. It's probably okay to take it out of context because I think you can pray for wisdom at any time. But the context of that verse of praying for wisdom is in the middle of my suffering. God, how do you want me to respond? What are you wanting me to learn? How is it that I can glorify you in the midst of picket, but in the midst of this terrible marriage I'm in, in the midst of the rebellious children I'm dealing with, in the midst of this crummy job I've got, in the midst midst of this physical suffering that I'm going through, whatever the suffering is, how can I glorify you in my response to that? Suffering often reveals the idols in our heart. When we suffer, we get angry, we get depressed, When we get anxious. But the the anxiety is not the issue. The depression is not the issue. The anger is not the issue. The heart is the issue. What is it that I'm expecting? God, what is it that I need to give to you? What is it that, that I need to understand that I can even rejoice as the scripture tells us to? So you need to understand that suffering is a normal part of human existence in this world and that God deliberately, okay, he's a father. He is training you individually, very purposefully. So deliberately, purposefully, and lovingly using suffering in our lives to deepen our relationship with him. That's the all things, right? The all things work for good. Even the suffering is part of the all things. And this is what he uses as a normal tool for our sanctification. In our, What does sanctification mean? Growing in holiness. What does holiness mean? Growing in our devotion to him, where we're turning to him and we're drawing more strength, we're drawing more comfort, that that we're looking to him for, for guidance, that we're looking to him to understanding that he's doing that in a loving way to us, that we can then grow in a deeper relationship with him. Now, the last thing I'll cover is future hope. Um, God offers a future hope for those who believe in him, and uh, it's it's the fact that some suffering will not end in this present life. Uh, in some, there are some marriages that don't change, there are some, there are physical issues that will not change, that will perhaps last a long time until the time we die. Um, But Jesus came to redeem that as well, right? The whole world uh, groans for for the redemption, waiting for the redemption. Someday there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, uh, and and we will live in that. So grief, physical disabilities, or pain, all those things may not end in this world. Um, God doesn't promise that some things will be fixed. His promise is that we'll grow in holiness. He doesn't promise to change our circumstances. He promises to change us in our circumstances, that we can grow in our trust, our our love, our uh, acknowledgement of who he is, and again, our our future hope. Um, In uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul talks about that in, uh, in no uncertain terms. As long and as hard as things seem on this earth, compared to eternity, it's a vapor. It, it, it'll go by. And, and you know, for those of us who are older, we can see that. Yeah, it, you know, life has gone by much more quickly than I anticipated. And now I'm looking forward to to the end much more uh, closely, if you will. You know. A, Tell people i don't really think i have one foot in the grave but i i can see the graveyard down the road a piece there i mean i'm getting closer to it so that that hope that eternal weight of glory is what we look forward to and when paul talks about his light momentary afflictions what is it that he's talking about well if we turn just a few pages over to chapter 11 paul talks about what he describes as light momentary afflictions he says, um, "Far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes. Let five times he got thirty-nine lashes. Can you imagine that? I, I can't. I cannot comprehend that. Uh, you know, one time was supposed to put you on the edge of death, and then." The second time, you kind of knew what was coming, because you've already experienced it once, and the third time, and the fourth time, and the fifth time, I I just cannot comprehend the, the torture that that entailed. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and if we read about that axe, how was he stoned? He was left for dead. They figured he was dead. That's how badly stoned he was. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers of rivers. And he goes on and on. Everywhere he went throughout his whole life, people were trying to kill him. They always had to move him from one place to another. They were beating him, stoning him. And then on top of that, I had to worry of, of the churches. What does Paul call that? Light Momentary afflictions, and how can he say that? He can say that because, in comparison with the eternal weight of glory, in comparison with coming for all of eternity, in comparison with seeing my Father face to face for all of eternity, that's what's light and momentary. So, so it's important for us to say the things that we are enduring don't seem light, nor do they seem momentary. And when we're suffering them, when we're going through them but in eternal in the in comparison with eternity they are indeed light and momentary as we go through our suffering and obey again we want to make sure that we're not thinking okay if i do this just right everything's going to be fixed my circumstances will change my relationships will be better and that might happen but it might not the important thing is that i'm glorifying god and growing closer to him as my heavenly father Uh, so our victory in christ isn't as a result of desires changing or circumstances changing but that we respond in a way that glorifies him Uh, jonathan edwards wrote his glory also includes the proper response of his creatures as they express their high esteem and love for him and as they find their rest and their joy in him. So in the difficult circumstances, we can find our true rest in knowing him, our true joy in knowing that we have obeyed him and glorified him through the trials and tribulations that we're going through. Um, 1 Peter 4.13, But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, I used to read that verse and say, you know, um, I'm not... I'm not really partaking in Christ's suffering because I'm not being persecuted. You know, nobody's throwing me in jail. Nobody's burning my house down because I'm a believer. Uh, now, those things may be, may be coming down the road, but, but I'm, they're not there yet. I haven't experienced them yet. But um, I think John Piper put a spin on it that I think is, is beautiful. He says, if you stub your toe on the path of holiness, you're sharing in Christ's sufferings. And what he's saying is that if I desire to grow in holiness in the midst of my own suffering and my own pain and the own difficulties that I I, uh, encounter, if my aim through that is to grow in holiness and glorify God, then I'm sharing Christ's suffering in a beautiful and glorious way. So all of that relates to the fatherhood of God because he's drawn us in relationship to him. Uh, that's really what what the the line is, and I think it's important for us to understand all those doctrines: justification, sanctification, uh, and, and the understanding of how suffering uh, is how God uses suffering in our lives, as well as this future hope that we, as we know that, we draw in deeper relationship to Him. Uh, so there's obviously a whole lot more we can say about the fatherhood of God, but but I hope again understanding these doctrines help helps us to grasp what life is all about. What life is about as a son and a daughter of our Heavenly Father. We gain insight into what he's doing into our lives and insight how we can be drawn and how we can draw into a deeper relationship with him. some of the big takeaways i want you to have is to grasp the love and the tenderness and the joy that god has he prepares that nursery for us waiting for us if you will to come in and he exalts over you he sings over you there's a joy in the anticipation of his relationship with you as your sons and daughters that is even so much more that we have for our children it's hard for me to imagine a greater love and joy than than what i have in my children but god has that much more than i do even Uh, So even in difficult circumstances, even in times of deep grief, you can be comforted that God is at work in your life in a very deliberate, a very personal, and a very loving way as a loving, tender father. He loves you and is shaping you. And I also hope you see the joy that God has in his relationship with you. This isn't some stern... A uh, taskmaster is joyful in, in his relationship with you as he shapes you and continually draws you closer to him and that you can then have that same joy in your relationship with him. And, and finally, to see the, with anticipation the day when our faith will become sight, what a joyful day that's going to be. And we'll see the joy in our Father and we will have joy that we've never experienced before. Uh, let me pray as we close. Father, I thank you uh, for this time. Lord, I thank you that you're a Father, and, and you are a Father in ways that we just can't fully comprehend, but we try, and it comforts us, and we just have so much peace as we sit in your lap in a way that is, is comforting and joyful and peaceful. I pray to you help us understand that more deeply. In Jesus' name. And-